0: Hello, Oh God, What Now listeners, it's producer Andrew Harrison here with a little bonus for subscribers. Every Monday morning, we put out an exclusive microcast for our Patreon backers, featuring all the regulars and called, well, we had to, Oh God, What Else? It's here to tide you over between episodes and here's a little taster of what it's like. If you'd like to get Oh God, What Else every Monday morning, then search Patreon Oh God, What Now podcast and back
1: us for as little as £2 a month. Now, please enjoy Oh God, What Else? The Supercut. I don't want to jump to Hitler too quickly in the discussion, but I've somehow managed to do it within the opening mm. minute. You know, if you look at the part of the stuff that made antisemitism so powerful in the early part of the 20th century... It was joining together right wing nationalist ideas about the decline of the nation with left wing anti capitalist ideas. And that was what channeled into the anti Semitism conspiracy theory. So it doesn't, so then when you see these sort of this mixture now of Islamophobia and anti Semitism and far right and people from the far left altogether, it doesn't actually seem quite as strange as it might on the surface. It seems to me that actually the end of lockdown is very clarifying
0: because when you were talking about anti-lockdown protesters, you could think, well, there are just some people there that are like disgruntled small business owners or DJs or, or, or you know, people who have a legitimate reason to be very, to really have had their lives turned upside down by lockdown and, you know, and, and so there was some sense, that okay, maybe some of the people here are just, they're just sort of legitimately pissed off and they're maybe not sure what waters they're swimming in. Whereas... This time, and I suppose the turning point was Kate Shimirani's speech. She's a, a, a former nurse who was struck off, and she has, like, the full toolkit of conspiracy theories. You know, look into her a little bit. There's Soros, there's Bill Gates, there's the Rothschilds, there's the QAnon, there's the Illuminati, there's 5G, there's vaccines altering your DNA, yeah. there's a, the, the, the Plandemic, there's the Council of the 300 or whatever, which is not, not, not a Zack Snyder film, but kind of an early... <laughs> The early 20th century conspiracy theory. And she cited the Nuremberg laws inaccurately, it turns out, with the suggestion that doctors and nurses um, would be hanged for their part in treating COVID-19. And that just seemed to bring together all kinds of things, really sort of bring to the surface and go, oh, right, this is not just anti-lockdown. This is not just, it's not even just anti-vaccine. It's somebody who, according to her son, who's been interviewed, Uh, a few times about basically how he's never going to get his mum back. You know, she's been talking about
1: conspiracy theories for a good decade or so. And this is sort of, this is her time to shine. There's a phenomenon in the literature on conspiracy theories, which, by the way, I'm quite surprised isn't actually that developed. There was sort of like a bit of work, you know, in the noughties after September the 11th, a bit of work, stuff around JFK and and the, the death of Princess Diana but then it's sort of, there really isn't that much out there. And then it's sort of taking off again now as an obvious area of study. And there's a phenomenon in there, which is basically a kind of epistemological breakdown, which is, you know, once you accept one of these theories, even quite minor ones, Mm. you therefore are much, much more likely to start accepting many more, even if they are directly contradictory to each other. I mean, there was one study, I wish I could remember the name of it, which was about sort of conspiracy theories around the the car crash in Paris that killed Princess Diana. And they were finding that people were believing contradictory theories about it at the same time. Do you sort of lose your ability to process reality? And so I think it's quite common when you see, you know, the, the, the sort of greatest hits they have from the sort of, you know, quite sort of old Illuminati stuff. To the much newer stuff around Bill Gates, it, it's not really surprising because your entire view of the world is based on the idea that there are forces that are so powerful they can control all of the media representation, they can control all of the politics, they can control the minutia of people's lives, and no one can shine a light on them. And once you believe that, almost any event you see is going to fall within, you know, the, the kind of that kind of causation.
2: People get really overwhelmed with the total chaos that's around them Mm. and how many things need to change. And then they don't really have enough time to kind of sit down and go, right, this is what I can do and this is how I'm going to do it. Or they feel that they need some kind of professionalized skill to be able to achieve that change, which as a campaigner who's worked with lots of people who've been affected by things or who are part of a system and pushing for change, you you just absolutely don't need. And in fact, some of the best campaigns and campaigners have come from totally left field and and have never done anything like that before in their life.
3: The first thing I wanted to say is that there's a thing that we learn in law school that's actually quite useful, and it's an evidence technique, which is called salami slicing. The idea is that when the other side Download their entire narrative case and supporting evidence onto you. It can be overwhelming, and there's no point trying to eat the whole salami in one bite that's the <laughs> that's the that's the lowdown when you can slice it so instead of trying to change you know to challenge the entire thing in one go. Take it one piece at a time and see whether you can challenge this piece or that piece and go for low-hanging fruit first. And I think that's actually a really useful attitude to campaigning. So forget about, you know, deposing the British government and actually look at the effects that most bug you and look for the closest ones, look for the ones that are really happening in your community and begin to ask, can I do something about this?
4: It's really interesting about the divide between how Conservatives Lord Churchill and Maggie and never fixate on their failures, whether it was poll taxes or the Bengal famine, but the, the left can only often look at the bad rather than, trying to sort of f- forget about that and, and concentrate on the good stuff that was done.
0: Well, obviously the Iraq war is is, is the main one. Do you think, I mean, it's obviously less well publicised, but among the kind of people that would be um, resisting Blair on, on Twitter, you know, sort of political geeks, do you think that his sort of subsequent work, which has often involved working with some very shady mm. uh, characters and, and, and sort of despots, has done sort of more to undermine his reputation.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think two things. I think, first of all, the inability to admit that the Iraq war was a mistake, to, to show any contrition for it not least because of the amount of resource it diverted away from Afghanistan at the time, which is now you know, a, a big thing his critics are focusing on. But I think it has, of course, been compounded by profiting uh, from his premiership after stepping down, you know, commanding a quarter of a million pounds in speakers' fees and working with tyrannical figures in, in Kazakhstan. Um, I think probably did help to accelerate the decline in trust in politicians that was already there.
0: I suppose that bothers me. It actually bothers me more than Iraq, because I think one could say in Iraq, and I do believe that he, he did rather get sort of carried away, but with quite a sincere idea that, you know, he'd be a global figure and you could sort of remake the world for better, which, you know, so therefore the sort of the sin is, is hubris. It's uh, rather too much trust in the, um, in President Bush at the time you know, rather than pure just sort of cynicism. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, well, if that was the sort of the defense was that he actually believed it then and his human rights arguments, then how can you then possibly go and take money Mm -hmm. from people who Mm -hmm. abuse human rights? That seemed to me something that I actually find harder to get over.
4: Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I came across recently was that, of course, he he did, uh, you know, do good work in Kosovo, and he is much lauded there for pushing the 1999 NATO airstrikes that helped to end the war. And that has led to not an insignificant number of boys in Kosovo being named Tonibla. T-O-N-I-D-L-E-R. It's fascinating. It's got a whole Wikipedia page. Go and check it out, listeners. It's it's really quite remarkable. And so, you know, while he may have very, very strong critics in the UK, he's an absolute hero in Kosovo. This week we're having a break
2: from the Strictly Political and talking about something more personal, our best and worst decisions. Where to
4: begin Rose where to begin
2: well <laughs> well quite i mean where, there, there were so many <laughs> but what was your best decision
4: um well so i think the i mean the best decision i've made in terms of its sort of impact on my whole life um was going to aa and by that i mean um accountants anonymous <laughs> because I'm a recovering accountant. For those listeners who don't know, I have not always worked in politics. And so my best decision was, was leaving that world to do a job that I actually enjoy and derive value from, rather than just trying to make rich people a bit richer. It was just such an important thing for a political junkie to do. Because if you're a political junkie, you have to get your fix. So if you're not getting that from your nine to five you go out and seek the high yeah and you do it in your evenings and you do it in your weekends and therein lies complete exhaustion what about you roz what what was you know looking back over your short life to date what what's been your (laughs) short yes one of the big things actually was
2: stopping driving lessons how old were you when did you do your first one I would have been about uh, twenty-four, mm-hmm. and I probably carried on for a couple of years, and I gave up. So I had the world's most patient driving instructor. He was just great, and he he insisted that you know he could get anyone through, even the people who were really really bad. But you know what? <laughs> After two years <laughs> and failing to reverse around a corner uphill at a, on oh. a driving test oh, in East hilarious. London, I realized that I was. Probably the first person who he was going to fail to succeed to with. <laughs> and I really didn't want to spend any more money <laughs> and put my friends through any more terror in order to try and prove something because <laughs> I've just never been happy being in charge of
4: a lump of metal that weighs a ton did you ever take the test or did you just never even get to that stage because the lessons were going so badly
2: oh yeah, yeah. i took the test in in east London. and i failed it obviously mm. and it was you know i i, I could just about it but but i uh, the, the terror which driving inspires in me was so great it was better not to inflict that on myself. And also, I think because it kind of sent me in, into a kind of bizarre sort of state of extreme panic, that I, I just, I mean, it wouldn't mm. be so bad if it was just myself I was likely to kill, but it was <laughs> other people as well. And anybody who was on a, in, in a car with me, you know, would agree.
4: So it wasn't you on the roundabout today that bashed into Nigel Farage when he was trying to find fuel. <laughs>
1: horror it's sort of weirdly it's horror and stand-up comedy have this kind of free pass to explore some pretty mucky stuff when they choose to like all of our kind of deep anxieties and the stuff that always comes up yes is stuff like like pandemics but it's also kind of reliably shit around sort of civilization are we just like properly just violent awful people really sex comes up a lot religion comes up a lot it's basically this forum for us to explain what makes us so fucked up.
4: Like who we really are when the structures around us break down. How close we ever are from mm-hmm. anarchy and from, you know, just... Uh, Becoming the the survivalist instinct animals that we really are. I mean, zombie horror is a particular favourite of mine, like subgenre within horror. And I think it's in part because, as a liberal, it's utterly terrifying to me to lose free will and to be commanded by another.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I also
4: think it, it taps into like the civil rights movement. I think zombie films are often about the end of somebody's world. It's often about the end of white supremacy too, and it's the idea that those who aren't yet infected start finding back and life as you have known it to to be has been completely called into question. I mean, are are there sort of horror films that that you can think of that that you feel resonate more in terms of their social commentary and, and, you know, your interest in politics than others?
1: I mean, recent, so the, the closest I had to that recently is, and I'm sorry about this. This is slightly an arty pick, but it, but it just is literally the best example is um, a Guatemalan film called La Llorona. La Llorona means the crying woman. It's a weird thing. It's, it's uh, like it's that, you, you, you know, the woman in black, it's basically that story. And I think the, in India, they have a very similar story. And there's one in Guatemala is, you know, the woman who's crying for the, the ghost of the woman because of the death of her children. And, It takes place, there's a guy who was basically Rios Montt, the former dictator of Guatemala. They barely even bothered to conceal him. And he's in his house. It's essentially a haunted house movie. He's in his house, his palace, and it's completely surrounded outside by these protesters who are shouting no justice, no peace. And he just can't leave. So that, you know, usually you've got a cabin in the woods that you can't leave because the car doesn't work and blah, blah, blah. He can't leave because of these demonstrations outside. And there he starts to Um. be haunted by the things that he did to the Mayan population in the Civil War. It's a proper haunted house movie, but effortlessly just took all of these tropes and turned it to make this really quite a cute, pulverizing political point. And I see that all, I mean, you look around now, you look at, you know, Candyman that just we saw like a couple of weeks ago, over and over, you see that horror is just very conducive to doing that.
4: Absolutely. Not in the zombie mold at all, or even the haunted house one. But to my mind, sort of a quintessentially political horror is The Wicker Man. And you have Mm -hmm. modern day versions of it, like the purge series that have built on it, perhaps not, quite as uh, effectively as the original Wicker Man. But it's this notion that a healthy society is one that must perform sacrifice. You know, only once the blood has been let can the harvest mm-hmm. be bountiful and people be be happy and, and for society to sort of all be okay. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure we all lie awake at night thinking which, which blood we'd let and who we'd sacrifice from the cabinet in order to be happier. <laughs>
1: Can we quickly, I think we're probably coming to the end of this, unfortunately, even though I could actually happily sit here for the next 90 minutes talking about this. Um, Can I quickly mention my, I think, my favourite horror film that I've watched recently or my favourite old one?
4: Please do.
1: I I think people need to go back and revisit because people don't talk about it enough. It's not a very obscure choice. It's Hellraiser. Have you seen Hellraiser I
4: have, yes. Not for a long time, but I am
1: familiar. It is fucking weird in ways I can barely describe. Like the story, this is kind of what I think makes horror so exciting is they can just start exploring these incredibly bizarre scenarios. The storyline is sort of about this cheating wife and like the blood of her lover becomes this living (laughs) portal to hell and out of it comes pinhead pinhead beyond the fact that he's one of the best designed sort of i was gonna say
4: characters. like surely you've you've gone to a fancy dress halloween party
1: <laughs> i mean when, it, it, know, it's, it's actually not that hard for me to replicate right, okay. that. <laughs> 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 uh, you're a dick by the way but yeah no that's true that's absolutely uh, true yeah. um but he is he and, and the other guys I can't remember what they're called cenotaphs or something like that um they're these kind of Sado sexual sadomasochist bureaucrats who have this ledger, you know, of of the sort of weird nightmare kink they impose to tally up the events. It's just like you're watching it, and each minute you're just like, where the fuck is this going? It is unbelievably, gloriously, joyously strange. And if you haven't checked it out for a while, I honestly would recommend going back to it.
0: That was Oh God, What Else? The Supercut, available every Monday morning to our Patreon backers. If you'd like to get it yourself, then search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast and back us for as little as £2 a month. And you'll get Oh God, What Else? every Monday. Thanks for listening.